0: Um, So if you were to remember anything from any given Sunday morning, rather than it be something funny that I said, which I'm a funny person and I say funny things, um, it would be the scriptures because that's what's eternal. That's what's lasting. That's what matters. Um, As a leadership team this morning, we were talking about the wood, hay and stubble. almost said wood, stay and hubble. Uh, The wood, hay and stubble that are our works and we're encouraged that um, those will be tested as fire for our benefit. Some will burn and some will last. I promise you, any effort you put into the word of God will not be of the hay and stubble variety. Um, so in the last book study, we were encouraged to read the whole book every day. Um, here, here's the encouragement with First John. There are five chapters. Um, I would encourage you to read it um, a chapter a day, Monday through Friday. And then on Saturday... Um, read the verse range that we'll be in that Sunday, and then again on Sunday morning, read the verse range that we will be in that Sunday morning. If you do that, I promise you that that word will not return void. Um, God will give you nuggets of truth. We don't even realize how deeply the word seeks into us. Um, um, Pastor John Piper used to talk about scripture memory longer, longer passages that we memorize or shorter passages that we memorize as as daggers. There are long daggers and short daggers. Each are effective in the battle for life. And um, as we look at the scriptures, we see that the only offensive weapon that we have in a life that tries to attack us is the word of God. Um, I said uh, during the middle of our last book study, if, if strangely you came in here and you looked up front and there were big metal iron racks. And in these racks were swords and we didn't talk about those the entire time. But at the end of service, I said, by the way, when you leave today, there will be people outside looking to attack you. And these weapons are the only weapons that are available to you. You would become keenly interested in these weapons. And that 15 minute class that we had after service on on the usage of these weapons, Um, would become something that you would pay diligent attention to. The word is the same way. It's so easy to forget this because it just sits. you know, It just sits on the shelf if you don't touch it and engage it. Um, But it is a living word, sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides to the division of bone and marrow, soul and spirit. So things that we can't even understand where they join, it makes that division. Um, And so as you read and as you hide this word, away in your heart so that you might not sin against God. You end up sometimes accidentally with little daggers. You know, perhaps you read the book of 1 John and, and you're going on in your day and, and the things that God will do, something will come up from your reading um, in 1 John. Perhaps you'll, you'll think about um, abiding in God and, you, and you'll remember reading by this we know that we abide in Him and that He in us because He has given us His Spirit. And you'll be encouraged by that. Um, so, just want to encourage you to keep that pattern as we go through this book study. And I'll mention that again at the end. But Monday through Friday, a chapter a day. Um, don't beat yourself up if you don't get through it. Some of us read really slow. Um, Patrick, Patrick Cheviot really struggles with kind of like basic reading. So, it'll be really hard for him. Um, so, pray for him. But I want to encourage you to do that. Also, if you have um, um, an iPhone or um, an Android phone, whatever. If you have a, a smartphone, you can listen to it redeem the time. Um, we used to drive to work. Okay? Some of you remember what that was like. Right? There would be places that you had to go. You would get more than nine steps in a single day, um, and you would have to be at a place. Right? And people would expect you to be at that place. And so there would be this mad rush to do things like you know, hopefully brush your teeth, um, you know, maybe comb your hair or something like that. And then you were out the door, and you were in the car, or you were walking. You were going to catch public transit. Whatever you were going to do, you had to be somewhere. And that gave us this time. So if you're of the ilk of people who no longer has to be places and do things, I would encourage you to still have that time somehow and then redeem it with Scripture reading, Scripture listening, listen to a podcast, something other than just opening Spotify and and droning out to Moron Music for like 20 minutes. Like, Use that time. Buffet your mind. So I want to talk to you this morning about my ideas on civil engineering and structural engineering. But I know that you're not here for that, because we gather around the proclaimed and authoritative, life-giving word of God. Talked about long swords and swords and short swords. Isaiah 55 and verse 11 is a short sword. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Praise God for that. That's the living word. This word is effectual. It's not just an interesting story. It's not Sam I Am or Hop on Pop um, or the Left Behind series, as special John Nicholas likes to read so frequently. It's rich and it's living As you spend time here at this church, there are some specific phraseologies that we use. I'll point your mind to two of those. Uh, One is platform. We refer to this area as the platform, and that is on purpose, and we kind of correct ourselves often because we think of this as a stage, right? We grow up, this is the stage. Don't go on the stage, you know, for whatever reason. Kids, you can't be on the stage because, you know, God lives up there, right? And here's the showbread, right? Don't run in the church building because God doesn't like you know, running or joy or laughter, or really kids at all. Um, So we refer to this area as the platform. And yes, sometimes little kids come up here and bang on the drums, and it's annoying, but it's okay. Um, But this is the platform. Why? Why is this the platform? It's not a stage, because from a stage comes performance. Um, A stage comes entertainment. A stage comes kabuki theater, where guys dress up like women and, you know, role play. From this platform comes a purpose. This is a platform specifically and expressly reserved for gospel proclamation, for the word to go forward. And so that's the way that we think of this area. This is not for performance. Um, In the center is a desk. The desk is for study and the desk is for the word of God to go forward. So we do that on purpose. And sometimes maybe we'll say platform. The next is church-based church organization. Church-based organization started as a joke, um, and then it became confoundingly real. So rather than referring to all everything that calls itself church as a church, and thereby kind of aligning and affirming, yes, that is a church, we started referring to the church-based organization. Uh, the church-based organization can be anything that says, we are a church. And we believe all kinds of insane stuff that you'll never find in here. And so for the safety of people, we don't just generally refer to things as church. Some things are church-based organizations. They might take some of the tenets of a church and say, we are a church. But when you look at them, you're like, but you're not, though, because the church is Jesus' bride. And so we don't get to define what the bride is. We don't get to define what the bride looks like. Um, That's Jesus' job. He has left behind instructions for that. And so we follow after the instructions. And and in a sense, as the world around us goes crazy um, and creates for itself churches, we don't affirm those by calling them churches. We might call them church-based organizations. We do this because we want to be accurate, not because we want to be obtuse. Um, And that's an important distinction. We're encouraged in the book of Hebrews 10.25 to all the more as the day draws near. Um, and, And I'm not wearing a sandwich board outside Uh, exegeting the newspaper, saying the day is near because helicopters fly in the sky. And the book of John talked about grasshoppers, and grasshoppers were how John would have described helicopters. And so the day is almost here. I just know that every day that passes one further from Jesus, the day is necessarily drawing nearer. Just logic tells me that. Um, If there are finite numbers, every time we tick one off, we're closer. Um, And so the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 and verse 25 encourage us to gather Why would we gather? Is it so that we would enjoy each other? Sure, we should certainly do that. That's part of the Christian life. We should be in rich fellowship together. We should be having fun, right? We should enjoy one another. We shouldn't just come together and it's a grudge fest, right? And I think we can slip into that. I've talked about that quite a bit. When two Americans meet each other, um, the first thing they do is ask each other what they do because you're qualifying them. You're stack ranking one another. And then you begin to talk about who's busier. It's a game of one-upsmanship, right? Talk about who slept less, who did more, who works harder, who worked harder. And so as the church, we have an opportunity as we gather together to take this day and set it aside as the Lord's day and gather in truth, um, sometimes sharpening one another. Proverbs 27, 17 encourages us that iron sharpens iron. That's part of our gathering as well. Sometimes we'll ask questions of one another. Sometimes we'll say something, and, and um, as often happens in reform circles, you become afraid to say anything because you're always being corrected by someone. Um, but I would encourage you that, that that's great, right? For us to to always be looking at the scriptures and joyfully inspecting whether or not something is true from the word. Like our, our source should always be with an open Bible, as Pastor John Nicholas puts it, and probably took it from someone with an open Bible, not an open mind per se. So, taking what people say, comparing it to the word, and seeing if it's true. And if it's true, going with it, enjoying that truth. In that sense, the book of 1 John is instructive in all of those ways. Um, This is a letter that is written to a group of people that we don't necessarily know, but it's dealing with issues of the day. Um, John, most likely the Apostle John, has written this book, It doesn't say, It doesn't jump out and say, I, the Apostle John, write this book. We just tag a name on it and we accept it. It's probably true, it's probably real, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But it does not start in that way. And it's interesting because the issues of the day that the book of 1 John is dealing with, I think, are real and present before us today, which probably shouldn't come as a surprise. Um, but that's not always the case, right? We're not always reading the mail that's written to us. Sometimes we're reading someone else's mail, and there's uh, lasting principles that we can take, but I think this talks about issues that are of our day, and I want to encourage you in this. I think we, as a people, as Americans in 2021, are post-post-modern. We talk as though we're post-modern, meaning we just kind of came out of the Iron Age, right, and here we are now. We're in a kind of a Postmodern society—we're kind of settling into our jobs aren't real jobs, right? Our work isn't real work. Um, we're kind of like a service-level economy, and so we have all kinds of time on our hands to come up with great ideas because we're not tired. Um, buddy of mine named Norm one time would talk about—he he did uh, manual labor work, and then he took on a job at the state, and he called it thinking work. Um, and I remember Norm telling me, "Man, that thinking work makes you tired." It's like, yeah, I know. It's just—it's just a different kind of tired. Um, but many of us, I think, are battling issues that came up in the past that were part of postmodern kind of societies. And that's people were arguing over whether or not they were atheist or theist. Right? People would talk about whether or not they believe there's a God. I think that's behind us. I think that wrestle was good because you could kind of find where people were. You could have a conversation about, with them about whether or not there's a God. And generally speaking, people who said they were atheists were being academically dishonest. And that was relatively easy to kind of have a conversation because they really didn't say there isn't a God. They were really saying, well, I'm not sure who that God likely is. So, okay, now we can have a reasonable conversation. But those days, I think, are long gone. I think everyone believes there's a God. Right. Like maybe you've seen the the sticker before that uh, it says coexist. It has like all the symbols on it and plus some some that like are just made up. I think we're in that kind of society where everyone just kind of says there's a God, but it's an unmoored belief. It's not tied to anything. It can be whatever you want it to be. Um, so what they're really saying is they're after a God of their own creation. And so the book of Romans talks about that. Romans 1.25 talks about worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And that's what we do when we start to say, oh, sure, there's a God. Yeah, of course there's a God. And my God is a God of love. And you, And as a Christian, we're like, no, totally. Yeah, you're right, man. You were dead on. Except they mean something completely different than I think you mean by that, because what they say is that a God of love is all loving, would be all accepting, and would accept whatever I say. The problem with that is uh, the God of Scripture says that there is there is there are there is sin, um, and sin separates us from Himself, and sin is a violation of his law, which is a reflection of his character. So sinning isn't just that we broke a rule. He created some rules so that we could know if we were with him or without him. Um, Sin is a reflection of who God actually is as a person. And so sinning is violating his character and nature. If his character and nature are love, we are out of love when we are in sin. So we're separated from God. So what people are saying when they say that God is love, and so God would accept me in every single way, actually does damage to anyone who believes that. It's, it's, it's a whole different thing. It's not atheism versus theism. It's not I believe in a God versus I don't believe in a God. It's I'm redefining God and effectively taking away anything that could bring salvation to people at all. It's more dangerous. Jesus said he would rather we be hot or cold. Right? If we're lukewarm, he just spit us out of his mouth. There's, there's nothing you can do with lukewarm. And so as a worldly people... Americans have evolved into worship of academic sounding and I say academic sounding because they're not really academic they're being academically dishonest they're just saying neat sounding things because they want to be in journals they want to be published they want to be celebrated in academia so they're kind of puffing each other up a lot of times it's academic sounding gook in neo-progressivism just like my thoughts on civil and structural engineering they're irrelevant Anything I tell you about structural engineering is irrelevant and should be hotly avoided. Um, Why, though, is it okay for people to just make up something about the God that created the universe? It's not okay for me to tell you uh, what the span can be on a two-by-six for the snow load of a roof truss, but it's okay for me to tell you what God loves but doesn't that feel strange? You don't trust me with the roof, and you shouldn't, but you trust me to make up things about God? That just means you don't really believe in God. You don't trust me with the roof, but you trust me with God, unmoored on my own, whatever my thoughts are, just making them up. That's dangerous. And so I would say the issues of our past are theism, and atheism, the issues of our present are, who is God? I think largely people are on board being somewhat honest that certainly there's a creator, right? The scripture said that for years. Everyone knows that that there's a creator. It can be plainly seen. Um, And if you're struggling with that, you just have to kind of get away. I'm telling you, your problem is TV. TV, radio, all of these things. You're not paying attention to the world around you. You've got like blinders on, you know? and uh, you're spending too much time on the tube. Because if you step back, go on a hike, look at the woods, watch the sunset and the sunrise, watch the stars, watch shooting stars, watch things in nature happen, you'll know that there's a God. Just do a little bit of surface-level thinking, you'll know that there's a God. Look at the way that people recreate people, you'll know that that is design. You know, lots of specific things happen in specific ways. Either that, or we just fell into the greatest, like, accidental, but it creates new of us forever kind of an approach. Like, how do we stumble into that one? And we're gonna find that mismatch of thinking in the book of 1 John, so what he's dealing with is something called Gnosticism, so some kind of secret knowledge. as well as antinomianism, and we'll talk about antinomianism in a little bit. So as we start, we're going to start today, which is twelve twelve, right? Is that right? 12-12? I think I'm right. Um, and we're going to go through chapter 6 and verse 5. Excuse me, chapter 6 and verse 5. Um, we're going to go through chapter 5, verses 18 through 21 uh, at some point in June. So six months is about where we're going to be with, with this book study. After that, we're going to go into our, um, 15 year study of the book of Psalms, but we're going to split that up. All right. So I want to encourage you. Some of you are thinking, man, I'm not going to make it. (laughs) Like literally I'm going to die inside the next 15 years. Um, increasingly I want to live at least another 40 just to see how this period of history is written about. But, uh, the Psalms—the way that we're going to do the Psalms. The Psalms are made up of several books. Um, we're, we're going to study either across or inside of each book as we move from book to book, right? So we're, we're in we're in First John now. We will do another book later because we've already done Second and Third John. So we'll do another book later. But before we go to another book, we'll do a bridge series in the Psalms. So we'll do a few of those books of the Psalms. So as we do book and book and book, in between each will be the Psalms. So over fifteen years. Um, Pastor John Nichols is working on the breakdown right now. After 15 years, we will have studied the book of Psalms. So that's awesome. Because we talked about that. And the book of Psalms is like, what are they, they say it's like a, like a Bible in the Bible. Um, and how do you study it, man? Like how much time? I don't even know if anybody's ever truly done a verse-by-verse study of the book of Psalms beginning to end. That Someone probably has, but I don't know how long that would take to do justice to that. I, I don't know how you would do it other than, than this approach that I personally came up with because uh, it was my idea. So let's talk about First John. Um, this book introduction is is one day, and if you've never been in a book introduction in the, in First Reform, you're not alone. No one has. It's the first time we've done it as First Reform. Uh, we will take one week, kind of talk about who wrote it, um, what kinds of issues did it address, what's it about, Who was it to? How do we understand it? Talk a little bit about how we move through it. And then next Sunday when we come together, we'll pick up in the first verse. So there isn't necessarily a set of verses that we're studying today, but we'll still touch on several. Um, And when we step away, we'll have a better framework for understanding the book of 1 John. So on Monday, when you read chapter 1, Tuesday, chapter 2, Thursday, chapter 4, and Saturday, the verse ranges. Um, So that was point A and point 2 you'll have a better framework for understanding these things. So one of the things that you'll notice when, when you turn to the beginning of 1 John, several books of the Bible will start out and they will say, written by this person or they'll have a greeting. Um, this one starts out sounding a lot like uh, the, the book of Genesis, actually, in a lot of ways. Uh, it says, this which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes and which we have looked upon, which we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life, Uh, doesn't talk about who wrote it. It doesn't talk about who it's to. It just starts talking about the issues that it's addressing and dealing with. It's straight to the subject matter. Um, That said, your Bible does say the first letter of John or 1 John. So historically, the church has understood that this book is written um, by the apostle John. There's a couple of reasons for that. Um, Polycarp. It was a person from history talked about um, John and saying that John had written it one of his uh, one of uh, John's own um, disciples or people uh, that was under his school of thought. Um, would say that John not naming himself in the text was fairly consistent with John as a person, whereas Paul was more like the John Hancock of the Bible, right? You, you, you see the framers and you look at all the signatures and everybody jokes because John Hancock's signature is like really huge compared to everyone else. That's like Paul. Paul always tells you, hey, it's me talking. That's why he cannot be the author of Hebrews because he never says his own name. Um, somewhat a joke. I don't know who, who did write Hebrews. Whoever wrote this book, though, uh, was in fact an eyewitness to Jesus' own life and ministry. So it makes sense that it it certainly could have been uh, John the Apostle because he was an eyewitness to the life and ministry of Christ. Um, Folks have argued that it's John's own writing style, and certainly the style is consistent from 1 John to 2 John to 3 John. So it seems like it makes sense that it's a single unit from a single author. It's referenced from a couple of people around the same time frame um, that it was John. But it's not entirely all that important, actually. Uh, When we start talking about uh, divine authorship, we know, of course, God is ultimately the author of anything that we're reading inside of Scripture— Um, When you talk about the canon, which which is how the books of the Bible are talked about, is how we measure whether or not something is scriptural. There's lots of different tests. Sometimes knowing the author um, is part of that test. Other times it'll be quotations across scripture, um, accuracy with message. How did the early church see it? All of those things leave us with no problem with the book of John being included in scripture and leave us feeling pretty solid that it was probably John who wrote this book. I would say that the language used in this book, though, is, is very loving. This is very caring, very pastoral, very concerned for the people who are receiving it. Um, this epistle talks a lot about children. It addresses children um, pretty early on, actually. It calls People, the children of God, it calls people little children, dear children. It's pastoral. It's concerned with the error in the lives of daily believers. And I think sometimes we we become a little bit accustomed to the error around us and just accepting of error. And so because of that, sometimes we can lack a little bit of precision and clarity. We can accept a little bit of a slop in our lives and be okay with that. And scripture very rarely, if ever, does that. Always coming in with authority and correcting confusion, correcting error. Because again, if you had me over to your house and said, John, we're designing the roof truss. And I said, awesome. Break out the whiteboard. And within 45 minutes, I had redesigned your entire roof. You should never live inside this structure. I know nothing about that. Okay. Now... At one point, I did want to write a book where I went and got all kinds of jobs that I'm not qualified for. Um, like go through the whole interview process, make a fake resume, go get the job, maybe do it for a few weeks, and I think I could probably pull that off. Um, but doesn't mean you should trust it. And so scripture looks for clarity around the word of God. Really, that if we want to know about God, this is where we're safe. Um You know, 90% of the books that are out there, unless they're pointing at the scriptures, just get rid of them. They're probably not good. And they're probably unnecessary. If If you had one hour to do some reading and some studying and you're like, you know, I'm looking at this great book by John MacArthur or I want to read Calvin's Institutes. I would say take that hour and read the Bible. Put those other ones on the shelf. If that's all that you have, I think you should be in the word before you read what interesting people think. Because people can go crazy. People can be wrong. The scripture is never either of those things. In the beginning, when we study the book of John, we read that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes. Now, I said that on purpose when I said in the beginning, because I'm talking about in the beginning of the book of First John. You didn't go back to in the beginning of time before there's a firmament above the sky and above the earth and then there was this space and then there was nothing. It was formless and void because God created it that way and then he started doing all these things. Your mind thought of in the beginning of the book. And by that same sense, when the book of First John opens, it says that which was from the beginning. He's framing up something. He's not framing up the beginning of the world and creation. He's about the beginning of the ministry of Christ on earth which they had heard of because they were eyewitnesses to Jesus' own ministry, which they had seen with their own eyes. They didn't see the beginning with their own eyes, right? It's not like Jesus said, okay, we're going to step in the uh, time machine, which is, of course, a DeLorean, not a hot tub. We're going to go back to the beginning, and I'm going to show you how it all went down. It's about the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so everything that precedes or excuse me everything that follows the book of first john is all talking about what happened during jesus's ministry and correcting errors that people had in understanding how that's important to their daily lives so i would encourage you that that's things that are happening in our life today as well people are misshaping what jesus has said about truth and about life what jesus has said about love what jesus has said about acceptance of people acceptance of others they're twisting that to their own purposes and that's not new, that's really old. Um, great book on that called uh, scripture, scripture Twisting. Um, talks about some superstars of the Scripture Twisting ministry, like like Benny Hinn and those kinds of people who will kick you in the chest and excise a demon. Um, kind of had some new rock stars, like uh, a guy named Todd that was down in South Florida. He would put up tents, right, and he would heal you. Except afterwards, like, he would still have the same problems. Um, people like that will script, uh, twist the Scriptures, generally for their own benefit, um, I, I don't know. if there, I, This would be interesting to know if there's ever been a healing event without a time of offering. Um, I, I'd, I'd be interested to know whether that's the case. So maybe our research team could get on that. <laughs> this epistle addresses the idea of antinomianism and Gnosticism. We said Gnosticism is, is secret knowledge, Gnosis, knowledge. You know, that's why you know you spell no, like knowledge of the K, um, is because of that. Or maybe you spell it G and O W. But antinomianism, that one feels a little bit more tricky. So let's we'll break that down just a little bit. Um, anti is exactly what you think it is. It means against. We're against all kinds of things. We're Americans. We know that right out of the gate. Um, somebody did a um Yeah. So somebody did, I forget what year it was. They, they, it was like, what was everyone outraged by on every day of a given year? Um, and it was based on like things that people were complaining about on Twitter. And it was like, just kind of demonstrating that Americans are just in a constant state of outrage. Like we are addicted to it. We have to be outraged by something. We can't just kind of float and exist. We have to be seethingly, hotly angry by something that's going on in the world around us at any given time. Um, I remember hearing an example one time of a tribe of people who were food deprived. And so in order to kind of make it through the day, they would wake up every morning and they would have like this mock fight all together. They would all fight each other and they would kind of get this surge of adrenaline to have kind of the energy to make it through the day. Right. I feel like as Americans, we're almost to the point of working through exhaustion that we need the energy that comes with being outraged by things. Anti, we're very familiar with as Americans, right? We're against all kinds of things. We're against, you know, personal choice. We're against freedom. We're against lots of different things all at the same time as Americans every single day that we live. The second nomian, nomos, is law. Um, So when people were saying anti-nomian, they were saying anti-law. They were thinking in the context of a Jewish framework for law. Um, the law being the law of God, and so they were were saying they were against the law. So they were doing that and saying, as New Testament believers, we need no more elements that existed in the law. If it was part of God's law, then it is gone, and it's just party time. Like, just whatever you want to do. And so that's why I say, today, we are really more dealing with issues of people who are anti-law, anti-nomian, than we are dealing with whether or not people believe in a God or don't believe in a God right? So everyone basically, so I say everyone, um, in the world around us where we're dealing with antinomianism today, it looks a little bit different, but basically they're saying God is loving, everything is love, and so we don't need to uphold any element of God's character that came from the law, whether it be um, law of law or law of morality and character. None of that matters because Jesus came and satisfied all of it, except that I would even argue that the Jesus came and satisfied all of it has been pushed down and is now irrelevant. And most people don't even know that. And they would just say, this God that we don't know is loving because I say it's true. And so anything is completely okay because God loves us. That's what like antinomian worldliness in America has become. Um, So I want to give a a specific example of that, but I want to start from uh, something that, so this is not a new concept, right? You've got Uh, The book of John is dealing with it. The book of Romans is dealing with it. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? And so this is how the believer comes to understand the law. Um, It's not that we earn our salvation through performance and through good works. However, if the law was a reflection of God's character, how could I live completely outside and even uh, counter to against God's character and law, actively living against God in in ways that are uh, hateful and say, I'm in God, I'm found in God, I'm found in Christ. The two can't live together. It's oil and water. And so that's why it's important when we talk about salvation um, that Jesus becomes Savior and becomes Lord. So we then follow after Jesus. When he says something, that's our desi- that becomes our desire. We trust Jesus with everything. We no longer trust ourselves to filter out right from wrong, uh, good from bad. We trust Christ and his perspective with everything. Um, there's a um, church-based organization leader named Stephen Furtick. Um, And and Steve-O said something really, really cool one time. Um, And here's here's what it was. He said, God broke the law for love. Okay. Now, I would bet you when he said that, he probably paused for a moment and walked around. He probably said it with a lot more emotion than I did. He probably built that up. God broke the law. That sounds cool. I mean, I'm going to admit, that sounds pretty neat. God broke the law for love. I bet people were swooning after him, probably literally swooning after him when he said that God broke the law for love. How cool does that sound? You could create a whole school of thought around God breaking the law for love for you. I don't know how much we are aware of this, but in church-based organizations, you have sermon committees. People are coming together months and months and months in advance of any message. And there are literal teams of people doing research to build a sermon. And that sermon, that message, that series, is built around a topic statement. And what they don't do is come together and say, what, does, what is God's will and character? What's revealed from the book that we're in? They're looking for a hook statement that makes you want to come back. They're looking to compete with whatever's on television right now. They have to compete with Yellowstone. They have to compete with everything on Netflix. They, they have to have great bands and wonderful shows to make you want to show up because there's no substance that they're pointing to in the Word. And so what you come up with is a church-based organization that people gather for because it serves them. There's neat statements like, God broke the law for love. It's like the time Drew, who is one of our missionaries, said to me, you know, that makes God more robustly sovereign. More robustly sovereign. I said, Drew, that sounds so cool. But it doesn't mean anything at all. What does it mean for God to be more robustly sovereign? Like none of those things can go together with sovereign. How do you modify sovereign and increase it? Sovereign's already there. Sovereign literally means the top. That's like going to the top of the top of the roof. There's no more top left, dude. God is just sovereign. So we don't just get to make these things up. Like I don't get to make up civil and structural engineering. It's dangerous for me to do that. Steve O doubled down, and he told a story. It was a really emotional story. It was something that we can all get emotionally engaged with, right? Our kids. Those of you who have kids probably care about them. In this story, kid is playing on some monkey bars. I don't even know if they still have monkey bars or if kids play on them, uh, but that's what's happening in the story. Kid is playing on the monkey bars and falls. Uh, which is significant, I guess. And so the parent then speeds with the child in the car to get to the hospital because it was, I guess, a bad monkey bar fall. It's not like somebody was out doing some just freaking awesome stuff on a scooter and took one to the guts, man. It was like pumping stuff through the handlebar. So the parent's speeding through town, breaking speed limits and breaking laws all over the place because they care about the child. Man, that dude comes up with awesome stuff, right? That whole committee came up with something awesome. Um, But the problem is, either in that moment, that preacher was being dishonest and manipulating people's feelings and should not be teaching, or has no personal understanding of God and theology and should not be teaching. Because God doesn't break God's law. He can't. He's not a man that he could lie. God is to save yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He can't have a rule here, a law here that's reflective of who he is, and then break it over there because you're neat. That's not how he works. That is a, that's a lie. It's designed to make you feel deeply. It's pinned on kids. It's, it's built around you. It has a neat statement. They probably put it on a graphic somewhere. They probably put a picture of clouds or mountains behind it with like grid lines and the shapes of diamonds uh, behind it, faded it out a little bit, cranked up the contrast, threw some glitter pieces on it, right? They probably had someone read it in a video montage, and you watched it and go, Man, God broke the law because he loves me. And we all became collectively stupider for hearing it. John and Paul found antinomianism to be a threat to the church. Luther had a lot to say uh, about that, but we'll leave it with he was not on board. What this is, is just a thorough dusting off of antinomianism. And it's very easily dismantled. Jesus said the law was finished, not because he broke it, because he satisfied it perfectly. Every jot, every tittle, every eye dotted, every detail of the law completely satisfied. Not broken because he loves you, satisfied because he loves you. Matthew 5.18 says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Scripture will save us from so many errors and misunderstandings. Romans 5.8, But God shows His love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was made the captain of our salvation because He was tested and tempted and always like us, just without sin. 1 John 4.10, in the book study that we're in today, says, In this love, Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The payment that was made for our sins. How could he make that payment? Because he never broke any element of the law. He was the full, complete satisfaction of the law. You almost have to hate the word to present that statement as truth. And if you were to flip ahead on your own time, not on ours, to 1 John 5.3, you would catch a spoiler alert on the anti-law view. But we can just know that it is flatly, simply wrong. Um, and to Gnosticism, hidden knowledge, we can know that God does not hide the truth about himself like some kind of a weird, sadistic, sadistic game of hot or cold. Right? Why would God have hidden truth? That's stupid. That'd be weird. Right? You can imagine like you're like, okay, maybe it's salvation in Christ. And he's like, warmer. And you're like, okay, is it salvation in Christ? Because he broke the law because he loves me. He's like, getting cold, getting cold. No, he gave us his word, his full revelation about himself so that we wouldn't be groping around in the dark, but so that we would very clearly find him. And then he built a whole structure of people that are called to be evangelists and prophets and priests and all kinds of different roles, all designed to then go out into the highways, into the byways, to find people who are lost, to present the truth of the gospel, which is simply a message that says Jesus is so great, satisfied the law so perfectly in all the ways that you can. You should trust him completely with your everything and by that you will be saved and you will be rejoined and renewed to your creator and live with him forever. That's not hidden knowledge, that's wide open. First John 4.10, in this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the payment for our sins. Consider this. Maybe two years ago, I packed up all of my thing. I said that on purpose. That's from uh, Megamind, when he says, I'm going to pack my thing and go, because he only owns one thing. Um, Two years ago, I packed up all my stuff. I said, you know what, big mama? I'm going to fulfill my calling as a structural and civil engineer. Now, it is a running joke in my house that I become interested in something, and I always tell my wife, hey, I know what I'm supposed to be now. I'm gonna be a bodybuilder, right? Like I'll watch the Ronnie Coleman documentary and I'm like, that's it. I'm gonna get swole, I'm turning over everything, I'm gonna quit everything I'm doing and I'm gonna go basically be Ronnie Coleman. So imagine I tell her, you know what? I'm gonna go major in mechanical and civil engineering. Quite a task that I've taken on, it is. I go to school and it gets a little tough though. Because it turns out there's a lot of math in that. And everything I've ever done in my life has been about avoiding math. And so what I do is I drop out. But my life's mission hasn't changed. I am still going to be a de facto expert in structural and civil engineering. And so I I start to develop my schools of thought. You know, I do what you do I get a whiteboard and I get a computer. And I sit down in front of WordPerfect, Lotus One Two Three, and I start working out all of my different approaches to structural civil engineering. I document them. I start to talk with people. I start to write blogs. And then they invite me into um, academic journals like Mad Magazine. And I start to become published. And then I can point to my academic journals. And I start to get people around me. And I say, you know what, I can teach you about structural engineering. Um, it's actually, it's, it's not that difficult. Check out some of this stuff. And those people start to study under me and they say, you know, this is this is great. This guy is charismatic. It's not me at this point, it's someone else. This guy is charismatic. I like what he's saying about roof load and trusses. Um, he's even created some new shaped things with his uh, 3D printer that are able to help in the construction of bridges, but so much cheaper than other people are building bridges. And my people then start to go out and into the world. And they go to work for very successful engineering firms that are working on projects like build Back better and rebuilding America. Um, maybe some of my people, uh, maybe maybe some of my people will go to. Um, oh gosh, what's that town that they just built right outside of Saudi Arabia? It looks like a flower in the desert. It's built on trash. Um, what is that city called? I can't recall. Huh? Yes, Dubai. You read stories in Dubai about fireworks, really cool fireworks shows. The problem with some of the fireworks shows, they're landing on buildings and those buildings aren't built to codes similar to the codes that we would build with and they're catching on fire like matchsticks, and they can't put them out because they just built it with whatever they wanted to. So that's the problem. When reality meets crazy ideas, the collision is gnarly. So my graduates who are out in the world that are sold on a bed of emotion out there building bridges, creating structures, saving money, building back better, are destroying things. And they're making, frankly, they're making things very dangerous for everyone. There's no truth in what I've put out there. And that's what John is talking about. That's what John is dealing with here in the book of 1 John. He is very concerned that there be an accuracy, To the way that God has presented. There'll be an accurate understanding. What does it mean now as as New Testament Christians that we had the law? What what are we to do with all the moral law? What am I to do with thou shalt not murder? That was part of law, and so it's gone. Now thou shalt murder. Now thou can murder. Now thou can just like mow people down. Crowds of people. Cars can go through crowds of people. People can shoot into other people's body. All this is okay if the law is replaced by love. So John is dealing sharply with this kind of an anti-law view. And so we too need to struggle, I would even say, struggle to be sharp. Um, As we understand the Word of God, as we understand how to apply the Word of God to our own lives, the lives of people around us, we should seek to have open Bible conversations when we're talking about the things of God. Right? Because that, that's the environment that we want to have, to start our conversation for God, not from our feelings. Um, and, and that happens a lot with advice. Someone will come to you and they'll say, hey, I'm dealing with this thing. Right? i got this issue going on, whatever that issue is. I'm thinking through this or I'm thinking through that. And they say, well, you know, here's what I think you should do. What if we change that conversation? Right? What if you had been spending time reading chapter 1 of 1 John on Mondays, chapter 3 on Wednesdays, chapter 5 on Fridays, and then the sections, check the math on that, I see, the sections that we're studying on, on a Saturday and then again on a Sunday, and somebody comes to you with an issue that they're thinking about, and your mind goes back to the Scripture. You say, that's really interesting. I was just reading this. Let's talk about that. Does that apply? That's so much more of an interesting conversation to say, well... Let me tell you what I think you should do. Who cares? You're an idiot just like I am. There's so much more freedom in following hard after Christ. So we should seek to be sharp. We should desire to be sharp. Because again, many of us are battling after issues from the past. Atheism, really not an issue today. It really isn't. People have just kind of jumped off of the cliff and said, sure, there's a God, but I get to make up who God is. And so, really, we've evolved to this kind of a humanist thought, worship society. Filled with pseudo-academic garbly-gook, neo-progressive ideas. Everyone believes in God, and God is uncovered as we just say wild things about him. Right? And here's how it always sounds. Well, I think God would... Cool story. What if I think the exact opposite of what you think? Now what do we do? Is God just nuts and thinks completely different things at the same time? There's a, there's a fork in the road, and God thinks to you, that you, you should go both ways at the same time? Um, see, it, the truth breaks down so quickly. When, when you don't have truth, it, it falls apart. It can't stand. A house divided cannot stand. There has to be a single source of truth. That's the creator of everything. And so 1 John 1, 1 through 3 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we've seen it. And we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So to John... The fellowship that was being had wasn't his to give. It was everyone's to have all together. It was a communal, it was a community of fellowship in Christ. Not in Stephen Furtick, not in Methodistism, not in Baptist life, not in Catholicism, in Christ. That's the first thing that we go after. Not all these weird divisions underneath. I'm telling you, all that's weird. And in 30 years, all that will be different. right? Maybe there'll be no Southern Baptists. Maybe there'll be no Methodists. Maybe there'll be no Catholics. Maybe it'll be all one weird thing. What won't change is the word of God. It will constantly present truth. And it will be fighting against the same kinds of things it's fought against since people started creating lies and mistruths. Anti-law, idol worship, our hearts always do the same thing. It just looks a little bit different as the world around us changes. But the scriptures talk to us about all those root issues, right? Like Jesus would talk about murder. That's the one we all think we're not guilty of, right? Every single person in this room is actually not guilty of physical murder. If you are, I want to know about that. You could tell me privately. I just want to be aware of who you are. So I'm watch you. Whenever I start a new job, I try to identify the people that are likely to have others in their basement because I don't ever want to be the person on the news going, he was such a nice guy, I never saw it coming. I want to be the guy that goes, yep, I knew it. I had him pegged from day one. Every day when he walked into the office, I was ready. Methodistism, Furtickism, Catholicism, Southern Baptist life, All of that is tertiary at absolute best to truth in the word proclaimed from this platform. And I pray for all of us together as a church that we will be excited as we read through 1 John as a body together. So again, I would encourage you to consider reading along with me on Tuesdays, chapter 2 on Thursdays, chapter 4. And on Sundays, the verse range that we'll be at. And the verse range that we'll be in, it's in your bulletin right now. It says, here's what we'll be next week. It's going to pop up on InstaTube and, and uh, Facegram. All of those things are going to say where we're going to be next week. So on Saturday morning, when you wake up, all you have to do is, is bring up all of those feeds and see where we're at. And that just read that that morning. Promise you, it won't even take three minutes for for most of you. Let's pray. God, we do thank you that you've given us one another to sometimes be iron on iron and get sharp. Um, God, but sometimes to be an encouragement to one another, helping helping each other see the fruit in our own lives. Sometimes we don't even see God what you're doing in our lives. And we're maybe we're downtrodden, maybe we're beaten down and and, and a brother or a sister in Christ comes alongside and, and, and reminds us how good you, God, have been to us. And the fruitful things that, that are coming out of us, that aren't of us, but are of Christ, that are evidence of, of your Son in us, of your Holy Spirit sealing and sanctifying us. So God, I thank you for all of those things. For those who are in the room this morning, God, who may not know your Son savingly, I pray that changes this morning that they see themselves compared to your law and know that you satisfied it fully and desire to be found in Christ and to be aligned to you. Um, God, and I pray then that we have an opportunity to come alongside them and to, to disciple and to walk with them and to build relationship with them for those days that you give us together on this earth. God, we love you and we praise you. I pray for our study through the book that you saw fit to provide in 1 John, that it would be divided well, and consume fully. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would stand and join us. As well.